Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. We're starting a new series uh, today, and uh, I'm really excited about it. We are diving into the most famous prayer in history. So think to yourself for a moment, you know, how would I rate my current prayer life? You know, how would I rate my current times in prayer with God? You know, on a scale of one to ten, maybe. Take a second right now. Um, all right, we're all going to write that down. And no, I don't, I don't care what your prayer life rating is, but I want you to know for a moment, what is my prayer life like? And uh, most of us, I think, live kind of under this shadow of, you know, I don't pray enough. I don't do enough. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't ask God enough. I don't worship God enough. I don't do these things enough. And so Jesus here gives us, you know, in the Bible, this prayer. And I'm sure you've probably learned it as a kid, right? I did. When I was a young kid, I learned this prayer, our Father. And I learned it with a bunch of words that I didn't know what they meant, like who are in and hallowed be, and all these little phrases that I was like, okay, those were cool. And, and so I learned all those different little things, and it's probably the most well-known prayer on the planet. Um, one statistician tried to figure out how many people are praying that prayer. They found that on some holidays, over two billion people estimated are praying or reciting that prayer on, you know, in that one day. But I wonder, for all of us here, some of us have been following Jesus for a long time. Some of us were kind of new to this whole church thing. Some of us, this is your first time here. I wonder how much the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples actually impacts the way that you pray. I wonder how much that that prayer actually informs how you pray. It's interesting that Jesus says, pray this way. And for a lot of us, me included, for long stretches of our walk with God or our desire to discover who God is, we know this prayer and we don't actually do much with it. And so uh, for some of us, this prayer is kind of something that we recite. You know, you recite it maybe to make yourself feel better or to kind of, you know, I was taught as a kid to say it a bunch of times, you know, sorry, Father, I mean, I could crank them out, you know, just like, you know, like I didn't even know what I was saying, but I could just, I could just, uh, you know, move it. And, and uh, what I've realized is that as we dive into this prayer over the next five weeks and hopefully redefine the way that you and I do prayer, as we do that, I want you to begin to look at this particular prayer of Jesus, the Our Father, less as a, you know, mantra to be recited and more as of a map to be discovered, a map to understand the framework for interaction between God and man and woman. Does that sound good? That was encouraging. Great. So um, I want to encourage you to believe God that over the next five weeks, your personal life of prayer is going to be set on fire, all right? That's what I want you to believe for. So I don't know where you're at or how much you pray or what your prayer life is like, but here's what I want to encourage you to believe. I want you to believe right now, Shane. I want you to believe right now, Joe. I want you to believe right now, Roger. I want you to believe every person in this room, didn't mean to just call up the guys, find a girl. I want you to believe right now, Heather, that no matter where you're at in your life, that your prayer life is going to be set on fire for Jesus over the next couple weeks. Does that sound good? So let's start in the most awkward place ever. Let's go to Genesis 35. I figured, how, do, how about we start as far away from the actual prayer? No, I didn't actually think that. But I want to lay a foundation. What I want to do today is zoom way out, okay? We're going to start this prayer and kind of start unpacking it. But before we do, I want to zoom way out and kind of give us a much broader, bigger picture of what Jesus is trying to accomplish here through this prayer. All right, so if you have a Bible, you can go to Genesis 35. If not, it will be up on the screen. 
Genesis chapter 35. I'm going to start in verse 9. You may be familiar with this story. I bet many of us are not. It's kind of, a, kind of a, not the most popular story in the Old Testament, but it's an incredible, incredible picture, and I want to, uh, to unpack it. And you're going to just have to stay with me because it's going to take a little while to get there. All right? Genesis chapter 35, verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again. When he came to Padam Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel or Bethel. Then they joined, they they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you are happy for you have another son. As her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin or Ben-Hamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that we get to gather this morning, all of us from different areas, directions, backgrounds. We get, we're grateful that we get to gather and communicate with you right now and sing songs that worship you and study a book that has changed the world more than any other writing has. And God, we acknowledge that, um, that we don't understand everything, that you're greater than we are. But I'm asking today in the name of Jesus that you would pierce through our inability to comprehend you and you would enable us to see Jesus. And that we would discern the truth of Christ. And in discerning the truth of Christ, be brought near to you. God, I'm asking that you completely reform and reshape our interactions in prayer with you over the next few weeks. Father, we open up our hearts to you right now. Each of us does this. And we ask that you speak to us specifically today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Scripture, what we see in Scripture is that Scripture is a bigger story with many smaller stories, okay? This is one of the most important things if you want to understand the essence of Scripture, that Scripture is a chronicle of God's interactions with humanity. And we see from the very beginning of the story that God chose to interact with the human race through this lineage, this family. And so he finds one individual named Abraham, right? And so as we chronicle the story of Abraham and his descendants, what we see is that God is actually painting with a brush that's much bigger, right? And we have this meta-narrative, this grander story, this larger story that's happening within the smaller stories. And so we see Abraham is the beginning of this family that God wants to bring redemption to the whole world. And he pulls Abraham aside by a vision or a dream. We're not exactly sure how God communicated with Abraham, but God communicates with Abraham. He says, listen, I'm God. I'm the God of all gods. I'm the big one. I'm the one that actually made everything. And I'm going to make your name great, and I'm going to make a nation through you. And so Abraham believes God. He leaves his home. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac gets the same promise from God. Then God has, or then, excuse me, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Ishmael, and for, or Jacob and Esau, excuse me. And then after those two sons are born, God, for whatever reason, chooses Jacob. And so Jacob is the one that the lineage of God, or the lineage of the blessing will move through. And so God tells Jacob, I'm going to make a nation through you. 
you. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, out of that comes Moses, who leads the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the land of promise. And so God, in the midst of that, is progressively revealing himself and his nature to his people. And so in the midst of this whole process, Moses is up on the mountain, and he interacts with God, and he says to God, what is your name? What is your name? And God gives an answer that only God could have come up with. I mean, if we were going to make this story up, we would definitely come up with a different name because this name is awkward. The name is I am that I am. That's my name. All right. Fair enough. What Jesus was saying, what the Spirit of God was saying, what the the Trinity of God was saying to Moses in that moment is, listen, I am who I am. I'm before everything else, and I have no beginning. Try to, you know, just grit your brain around that for a second. I have no beginning, and I have no ending. This is who I am. And so Israel, in their interactions with God, begins to pray, develop different prayer forms, and they wash their clothes and their garments and their bodies, make sacrifices, they burn incense, they play music. They have all these different practices. In the days of Jesus, a, a normal Jew would wake up in the morning and have morning prayer and then they would have 9 a.m. prayer and then they would have noon prayer and then they would have 3 p.m. prayer and then they would have evening prayer and they had this routine where they would worship and that they would speak the various names of God but interestingly enough this name I am who I am was too sacred to be spoken it was in fact too sacred to be written so God's name was so holy so set apart so perfect that the Israelites wouldn't speak it and they wouldn't write it and so that they would come up with all these different ways to communicate with God so rather than calling him Yahweh or I am who I am, which was the actual name of God. They would call him Adonai, which means the Lord or the the King. And so they had all these different ways of communicating with God. Now, when they wrote the name of God, they wouldn't write the vowels because it was too holy to even write in its fullness. So they would write Y-H-W-H, and this became the written name of God. And literally, before a scribe would write that name, he would leave his pen and his ink. He would go, and he would bathe himself. He would put on new clothes. He would put a, take a fresh pen, fresh ink, and he would then write the name of God. And if three lines later he had to write it again, he would put his pen down again, go and wash and go through the same process. The name of God was so revered, so holy. Now tradition kicked in and years and years and years of this. And if you know the story of the people of God, you know that there were prophets and there were encounters with God. And then there were 400 years of silence. And within those 400 years, there's no communication in the scripture between God and man. And then after 400 years Jesus walks on the scene. And the people who revered God so deeply had now become entrenched in their own traditions. So entrenched that they no longer even were genuinely communicating with God. Instead, they were walking through their routines without any honest communication. And here Jesus steps on the scene, and in Matthew chapter 6, he tells the people of God how to interact with the person of God in a way that was incredibly offensive to the establishment. We're going to read it together in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, stay with me this morning. We're going to zoom way out, and then we're going to come way back in. So if you're a little confused, 
it's going to get better. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Here's what Jesus says. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so right away, these you know listening Jews are a little bit alarmed by this statement. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. Hold on a second. You're saying that I can have something intimate with the divine, holy, perfect Yahweh whose name is not written or spoken? You're saying that the perfect God who revealed himself to Moses on the mountain will call me something intimate and have a special secret place for me? This was radical. This was unheard of. Then in verse 9, he says, or verse 7, I'm sorry, he says it like this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I don't want ritual. I don't want repetition. I don't want your prayers to be marked by this cadence, by this, you know, repetition and cadence that doesn't have any substance. Instead, I want you to have a very specific type of interaction with God. And here's what he's going to tell us in verse 9. Check it out. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. What? Now, for the Jew listening to this, this was a radical idea. And for some of us, it's become watered down and we've missed the essence and the secret of it. For the Jew listening to this, check this out. They were hearing, wait a second, wait a second. I understand that God is the father of the nation of Israel. They got that. That was a comprehensive, you know, an idea that they could comprehend. But what you're talking about, Jesus, is a very personal interaction with this God. You're saying that I can go to my father in secret. You're saying that I can have this intimacy with him. And you're saying that when I pray, I should refer to him first as father, not as judge, not as Lord, not as king. Got the first relationship that I should have in terms of interaction with God his father. In fact, over 160 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to God as my father or our father. And so what Jesus is proposing here is a fundamental shift in the way that people interacted with God, that your primary relationship to God will be this relationship between father and child. Well, how can he even make that declaration? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us some very specifics that got us there. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, stay with me. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4, he says it like this. And because you're sons, he sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, or Daddy, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what he's saying here is this, that Jesus Christ, a man, fully God and fully man, came onto this earth as your representative. He died on a cross so that all of your sins could be placed upon him and so that all your wickedness could be atoned for on that cross. He rose from the the dead as the firstborn of many brothers. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and then he released the Holy Spirit onto the earth. The Holy Spirit fills the heart of the believer and your spirit and God's spirit become intertwined in what the Bible describes only as 
a marriage that can't be broken. And so now your spirit and God's spirit are forever and permanently intertwined together. And in the midst of that relationship, God now gives you a new name and adopts you into a new family. And your interactions with God are forever and first defined by that relationship. So why is this so important? Most of us would say, okay, got that. What does this have to do with me? Why is this so important? God made fathers and mothers different. Somebody say amen. God made fathers and mothers different. Stop it. Mothers play a crucial role. They play a crucial role of nurturing, a crucial role of caring, developing a child in a way that God has uniquely designed a mother to accomplish. Fathers also play a crucial role. They play the role of protector, oftentimes, safety provider in, some, in many circumstances. But there's something else that God has given to fathers. God has pre-wired humanity in such a way that your identity is tied to the words of your father. I said that God has pre-wired humanity. Some of you just got a little bristled by that. God has pre-wired humanity in such a way that your identity is tied to the words of your father. There's something that a father has that enables a boy to become a man. There's something that a father has that it ascribes beauty and worth to a daughter that when she's received it from him, she does not need to pander for it from anyone else. Something is given to the father that enables enables the father by his words to define the identity of his child. There's something unique in this, something divine in this. In Genesis chapter 35, we see that Jacob received a name from his dad, Isaac, right? And the name he's given is Jacob, cheater, deceiver. That's the name he's given. So his name literally means cheater or deceiver. So we hear Jacob, but in their language, they heard cheater. And so every time this guy heard his name spoken, he heard the words from his father's mouth, cheater, deceiver would you come here would you come and help me out with this and so this literally became the identity of his life and so he cheated his brother he cheated his father he cheated his uncle he was defined by his cheating abilities but in the midst of that identity he has an encounter with God and God says listen your name has been Jacob for a long time but it's not going to be that anymore because there's a personal connection between you and me and I'm going to supersede hello the words of your natural dad and I'm going to say your name is Israel which means triumphant with God one who prevails with God and just after this encounter he now finds himself with his wife his wonderful wife dying in labor and she cries out she says listen my son's name is going to be Ben Onai because I am sorrowful that word means son of my sorrow right I am sorrowful so I will call him Ben Onai and she begins to pass away but it's the father that steps in and says no no no, 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 no. That will not be the identity of my son. I've known what it's like to be called something that defines your whole life. This kid will not be defined by the son of sorrow. This kid will have a different name. His name will be Ben Hamin, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And so in the midst, that was a good place to clap if you wanted to, but in the midst of this moment, his entire life is restructured and redefined. Interestingly enough, God is always painting multiple pictures at the same time. This one gave me chills. 
you find in this passage that um, this was all going down in a very particular town called Bethlehem. And if you know your Bible, you know that there's been a few significant instances in the history of Bethlehem, one of which was that another son was born there. A very important son was born there. And um, his mother saw him as a man of sorrow. His mother stood at the cross and watched him die. When his mother looked up at him, she saw a bleeding, dying man. And he was a man of great sorrow. But it was the father of this particular son that stepped in and spoke something different over him and said, no, 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 no. He's not going to be defined as a man of sorrow. He's going to be defined as my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And because he's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, I will lift him out of being a man of sorrow and I will make him the son of my right hand. And he will sit at my right hand until all of his enemies are a footstool for his feet. My son will rule Jesus Christ defined by the words of his father and our father so that all interactions with God could be defined through what was purchased in Christ. And so all the names of God that we see in the Old Testament, yeah, we're just getting warmed up now, it's getting good. All the names of God that we see in the Old Testament, God has given all these various unique names. They find their fulfillment when you understand him as father through Christ. And so we can say that we believe those names and the Jews received these names but didn't understand how they worked or how it could happen or how it all fit together. And then Jesus comes and purchases adoption for humanity, redefines the relationship for all time between you and God so it's no longer a distant perfect being and a sinful broken person but it's a loving heavenly father and a broken needy son that's restored through that relationship and because of that all the names of God are fulfilled and so we see the name of Yahweh my righteousness the Lord my righteousness and we realize that my righteousness is purchased through Christ and I made righteous Yahweh or the Lord who sanctifies another name given to God in the Old Testament we realize that we're sanctified or set apart because of our relationship with God. The Lord, my peace, he becomes my peace because me and God are forever reconciled for all time. The Lord who is there, he will never leave me or forsake me because me and Christ have forever been knit together. The Lord, my healer, he cares for my body, soul, and spirit because me and Christ have been reconciled. The Lord, my provider, I'm one of his children. He's never gonna let me go with lack. The Lord, my shepherd, the Lord, my banner, every aspect of who God is is fulfilled filled in my relationship with Christ. And so we see here this collision in the first line of this prayer. Our Father, I am going to primarily interact with you through this purchased and adopted relationship in which I believe. Our Father, holy is your name. This collision of the highest reverence, the greatest intimacy Hallowed be your name, my Father. You can write this down if you like. All interaction with God must start with our Father. All, you can go to him as judge. You can go to him as Lord. You can go to him as boss because he is all those things. But if you want to interact rightly with God in prayer, all interaction with God must start with our Father, until you understand our Father, there is no effective prayer in the new covenant. Our Father. And if ever there was a people and a generation that desperately needed to understand both the holiness, hallowed be your name, and the intimacy, our Father 
it would be this generation. Yeah, he's perfect. He's the judge. He's the king. He's a consuming fire. And at the exact same time, he is the forgiver, the lover, and the one who has accepted you. Does it bother you when people talk about God as father? Is there something in you that bristles when that happens? For the vast majority of us here, you've got some baggage just all around the word father. 63% this is an interesting statistic of youth suicides are from fatherless homes in the United States. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. We see psychology today, one of the leading psychology magazines said, from birth, children who have involved, who have an involved father are more likely to be emotionally secure, be confident to explore their surroundings, and as they grow older, they have better social connections. We see that the father plays this unique role of defining the identity of the individual, that father speaks words that change the course of the history of the individual. And you might be here today and say, Justin, no, hold on a second. I don't like that because my father failed. My father left. My father never said words of kindness. My father spoke words of harsh selfishness. My father never said much of anything. My father was weak. My father was a coward. My father didn't care. My father never invested in my success. And you're here today and you're coming with all these different questions and issues about your father. And something inside of you is aching and interacting with God as father is carrying the baggage of how dad dropped the ball and fumbled and didn't show up, didn't give up, didn't surrender his life for you, never built the foundation, never taught you of Christ. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you say, honestly, my dad's been awesome. I love my dad. He's been incredibly faithful and godly and helpful, and that's wonderful. And yet still you find inside yourself this ache, this longing, this searching, because no matter how good your dad or how bad your dad has been, there is something inside your soul that can only be satisfied when you know our father. C.S. Lewis said it like this, one of the great Christian writers, a car is made to run on fuel and it would not run properly on anything else now god designed the human machine to run on himself he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on there is no other some of you right now are defined by the word addict by the word pervert gossip defined by the word lonely Forgotten, insecure, afraid. Do you realize that you need to hear the voice of your father? That's the only thing that's going to solve those deep questions. To hear him say, forgiven, loved, accepted, called. Some of you guys know my story, know this story. I've shared it before here. I felt the Lord compelling me to share it again. Season in my life, 19, 20, 21 years old, right around that season that I found myself really looking for mentors, you know? 
Like, I really wanted a mentor. I was a follower of Jesus. I met Christ as a teenager, and he had completely changed, transformed my life. But there was this thing in me that just had this longing for a mentor, and I loved my dad, and we had a good relationship, but something inside of me was still kind of like hungry, longing for spiritual mentors, for men to just kind of come around me. And so it was my constant prayer, my most frequent prayer. God, would you lead me to men who will invest in my life? And I felt like every time I tried to establish that type of relationship, they didn't seem to fulfill what I was looking for, and it was a struggle. It was a long-time struggle, and years went by, and there was a frustration and even a bitterness that got involved in my heart through, you know, for church and for leaders and for men because I felt like, you know what, why don't these people want to invest in me? Why won't anybody walk with me? Why won't anybody care deeply about me? And I found this bitterness that everybody's selfish. Everybody's about what they want. Nobody wants to walk with me through my stuff. And I found that it, more and more and more this longing, this desire increased. Finally, I was at a church service. It was like a Christian conference, and there was hundreds of people there, and this well-known, superstar, nationally known Christian preacher man was up there, and he's up there preaching an incredible message, and when he gets up, he starts to say, listen, I believe that today God wants to give people spiritual fathers and mothers, and my heart jumped. I was like, yes, that's exactly what I need. And so he said, I'm going to pray for you today that God will release in your life spiritual mothers and fathers. And I thought to myself, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need. He's going to pray. God loves him. I'm sure that he'll work it out for me now. This is going to be great. And so I was so excited when he said, listen, at the end of the service, I want you to come up and I want you, I want to pray for you. I'm going to lay hands on you and I'm going to see God move in your life. And you're going to experience this understanding of the father, this understanding that you're going to have a spiritual father father and mother that's going to bring it into your life. And so we all came running forward. Literally hundreds of people came up for prayer and he's praying for each person one at a time and people are crying and experiencing God and I'm waiting and waiting. And it just so happened that the way he moved through the crowd, I ended up literally being the last person waiting for prayer. And so hundreds of people had already been prayed for. It'd been a long time now and I'm standing there waiting for prayer. And he finishes praying with this girl. (coughs) And then he looks up at me and I don't know if he didn't realize or what, but then he looked over at his uh, associate and he said, I'm tired. I think I'm going to call it a night. And he literally just walked right past me, down the aisle, out the back door. And my 20-year-old self is standing there. Band kicks in. Everybody's singing, dancing. People are clapping. I go back to my seat. And I sat down, and I just started to weep like a little baby. I just started to weep, and I just literally was convulsing, weeping. I didn't know what was going on inside of me, but I knew that there was something so deep that I needed, something so significant that I needed, and that I, this rejection, this insecurity, this uncertainty, I needed somebody to give me a name. As I was sitting there weeping, I heard the voice of God, one of the clearest, most specific encounters with God I've ever had, deep in my soul. I heard him just simply say, you are my son. And when I heard God say those words, literally the entire trajectory of my life shifted. And I found that that insecurity And that fear, in fact, I don't know if I'd be standing here right now talking to you if I had not met with God in that moment. That insecurity, that fear, that uncertainty about myself, that constant need for affirmation, that constant need for someone smarter or greater than me, 
in this moment was satisfied. And interestingly, in the sovereign hand of God, shortly after that encounter, men, mature, older, godly men, began to come around my life and invest in me like never before. And I thought, okay. See, the beginning of effective prayer is the blazing revelation that God is both terrifyingly holy and indescribably intimate with me. And when we understand God as Father, then we can come to Him and say, Father, I worship you. I worship you. Hallowed be your name. I worship you, God, for all that you've done and all that you are. Look at me just for a second. Today, God wants to say something to you. I believe that. Today, God wants to say something to you. You're sitting here, you're 58 years old, and you've gone through a lot of stuff and a couple of different relationships, and it's difficult. Today, God needs to say something to you. You're sitting here today, and maybe you're the same age I was, 21 or 22, and kind of confused and fighting and always looking for something, and God wants to say something to you today. See, I don't know what your earthly father did or didn't do, but I do know this, that there is an ache inside your soul. There's a direction and an identity in your life that can only be satisfied when your father speaks to you. And see, effective prayer, the reality of prayer, until you discover his name, Father, you can never fully understand your name. Band can come out when I sing in just a second. Where does prayer begin? Where does effective prayer begin, Jesus? Friends, effective prayer begins like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the map to interact with God. The revelation and the certainty in your spirit the assurance in your heart that he's not counting your sins against you or interacting with you primarily as the judge or the king. He is all those things, but that he chooses to interact with you first as a son and as a daughter. Stand on your feet with me this morning. God wants to revolutionize the way you pray. I said God wants to revolutionize the way you pray. And right here, right now, I really believe that God wants to talk to you. That God, it doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter if this is your first time here. It doesn't matter about those things, what culture or race or age. Or, th those things are not the dividing lines of humanity. Right now, well, I've got a friend with me. Right now, well, I'm with my family. It doesn't matter. None of those things are central right now. Justin, I've been a Christian for 30 years, okay? Right now, the Father wants to talk to you in a way that only He can. In a way that only He can. Let's pray and ask Him to do that, and then we're going to sing. Father, as You've spoken to me so many times, when I forget who I am, and I have to look up at you and say, would you tell me again who I am? Because I forgot.
the way that you've communicated with me so many times when I did not deserve it because you've adopted me. God, I pray that you would do that and more for my friends here this morning. Father, I pray that every person here that's got a gaping wound in this area, that you would give them the courage to appear inside and let you say the words that define their identity. God, as you have by your grace ordained life that the Father has this power in his speech, I pray that your words, Father, would overcome every other word that was false. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.